Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In 2003, before the U.S. invasion of Iraq, there were an estimated 1.2 million Christians living there. Today, that number is less than 250,000, an 80% drop in less than two decades. If this trend continues, a religious minority that has been in Iraq for centuries will be gone entirely. A recent article in The Atlantic by reporter Emma Green describes the plight of Iraq's Chaldean Catholic community and the incredible pressure that they have been under since the fall of Saddam. This not only includes ISIS's reign of terror, but day-to-day discrimination against Chaldean Christians that is causing so many to seek to leave the country. Emma Green is a staff writer at The Atlantic magazine covering policy, politics, and religion. We kick off discussing the history of Christianity in Iraq before having a broader conversation about the causes and consequences of the fact that a religious minority is fleeing Iraq in such huge numbers. A key test of a democracy is how it treats its minority communities, and by this metric, the exodus of Christians from Iraq does not augur well for the prospect of democracy in that country. So a quick note before we start this episode, over the course of six years of running this podcast, I have interviewed hundreds of astounding people who have lived absolutely fascinating lives and careers in international affairs. This includes foreign ministers and diplomats, famous academics, journalists, social entrepreneurs, and many more. I have now decided to collect the very best of these interviews and offer them exclusively to premium subscribers. I've already posted several of these excellent interviews for premium subscribers, and each week I'll be posting a couple more. I have about 50 of these in total. I've already posted about six or seven of them exclusively for premium subscribers. I will be rolling out one or two new episodes every week to become a premium subscriber and access these episodes chock full of great life and career advice. Please follow the link in the description field of this podcast episode that will take you to a page on Patreon, which is a platform for supporting online content creators like myself. From there, you will unlock the bonus episodes and also other rewards like access to my daily news clips service called Dawn's Digest. This is a news clips service that people who work in global development and humanitarian affairs subscribe to. We serve several major institutions like USAID and the UK House of Commons and many more, and it can be yours, complimentary, if you become a premium subscriber to the show. You can sign up for your premium subscription by following the links in the description field of this podcast episode, wherever you're listening to it, just a couple of taps on your smartphone and you will be there. Or you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more or directly to 
patreon.com slash global dispatches. You would be supporting the show, unlocking great words for yourself. Thank you in advance. And now here is my conversation with Emma Green of The Atlantic. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So Christians have been in Iraq since just a few hundred years after Christ. This is a historic population that have been all over Iraq, but heavily concentrated in a region called the Nineveh Plain that's in northern Iraq for literally thousands of years. What was so interesting to me in reporting this story was also learning that they feel their connection to this land, to this place, actually reaches back before. For Christianity. So Christianity is their identity, it's their confession, it's their way of forming their communities. Church is at the center of their lives, but they also see themselves as a people, as a nation. And that connection to a national identity reaches back far before Christianity and forms the basis of some of their claims to being the original people of Iraq. So I uh, so before we get into sort of the the nuts and, and bolts of of your really tremendous piece of of journalism in the Atlantic, can we just nerd out a little bit on on the religious uh, aspects of uh, Chaldean Christianity in Iraq? I mean, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm I'm, I'm a, a fan of religion. If if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be teaching like comparative religion in some leafy uh, northeastern liberal arts college. Um, that sounds great. Yeah, no, it, it did. I, I I took another turn and and started this podcast instead, but. Um, <laughs> Um, so one thing that, that was really interesting to me that, that came out in your piece, and, and you referenced it earlier, is how, you know, unlike, say, mainstream Christianity here in the United States, there's this like almost liturgical connection to the place, to the land. Um, can you sort of talk about that a, a little bit? And, and, and it seems based on, on your piece that, that you probably like attended a Chaldean service there. I did, yeah. I traveled in the region and went to several different churches, went to Mass there. And one of the things that so struck me that I wanted to convey with my reporting about the Christians in Iraq is that there's something really different about the way they conceptualize who they are and how they know who they are compared to, for example, Protestant Christians in the United States. So I talk about the sort of Protestant mind, as we think of it in the U.S., where there's this conception of the body of believers, wherever they are, that's where church is. It doesn't matter so much where your building is or where you're located geographically. It doesn't matter exactly what country you're in or anything like that, although those things can be important and, and useful. It's really about sort of this free-floating idea of the church. And for these Christians, for the Chaldean Christian population that I focused on, it really is the opposite. It's this version 
vision of religion, of Christianity, that understands itself specifically through a dialect of Aramaic that is very close to what Jesus would have spoken. It's a format of service that has all of these callbacks to ancient ways of doing worship. It's specific patches of land. It's specific buildings that were built hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, that still are important to them. And all of those things collectively make up their identity of what it means to be a Christian person. And I think the reason why this is important, besides the sort of fascinating nature of it and the distinctiveness of it, is that it really opens up this question of what it means to be Chaldean in diaspora, to be part of the Assyrian Church of the East in diaspora, or Syriac Orthodox Church in diaspora. If these are Christians who believe that specifically being in their historic homeland is an essential part of what it means to be a Chaldean Catholic, then who are they when they're living in Detroit? Who are they when they're displaced all over the world to San Diego and Australia and to Europe? where all of their relatives are scattered across the globe. And that's the reality that the population is facing now. We've seen this huge drop-off since the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. Somewhere in, obviously, these numbers are, are kind of rough because census-making in Iraq, especially in times of war, is fairly complicated and not necessarily scientific. But the best numbers that we have from reliable sources are somewhere around the 1.2 million range in 2003, now to somewhere around 250,000. So that's an 80% drop in this 16, 17-year time period. And the reality is that most of Iraq's Christians are now living in diaspora. Mm -hmm. And the question is, who are they now? Um, how in the years uh, of Saddam were, were Christians treated? So just to be clear at the very beginning, obviously Saddam Hussein was no champion of religious liberty and freedom. And in so many different ways, he repressed different religious minority groups, specifically Shia Muslims. Obviously, he extracted a genocidal campaign against Kurds in the north in Iraq. So I don't want to in any way sort of paint the picture of Saddam Hussein as this great bringer of religious freedom. But uh, there is a sense in which, especially for the clergy, for established churches in Iraq, that the Saddam years were ones at least of stability. His regime afforded certain protections to the Christian population. Uh, there were highly visible advisors in his government who were themselves Chaldean Christian, which is the most populous group of Christians in Iraq. And so during those years, there was this side effect of the political stability for whatever it's worth that Saddam was able to bring that allowed Christians to operate under a sense of at least some kind of security or stability, even if they did not have what we would think of in America as a fully fledged form of freedom where they're totally enfranchised, completely equal to other citizens and fully able to exercise their religious beliefs uh, sort of fully to the fullest extent of themselves. But they weren't like specifically targeted in the same way as other uh, religious minorities were. And, and, and you mentioned um, some high profile members of his inner circle, Tariq Aziz being, being one of them. He was exactly. sort of like the, the Western face of, of the Saddam regime exactly. in, in, in sort of the, the worst of his era. Um, and he was the foreign minister for a long time. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, can you, uh, I, I know in, in your piece you talk about the plight of, of one town during um, ISIS's expansion in, was it 2014-ish? Mm-hmm. Um, could, could you sort of talk about the sort of Chaldean Christian experience in Iraq during that ISIS era and, and sort of what happened um, to, to that town? Yeah. So during the summer of 2014, ISIS begins its push across the Nineveh Plain, going from Mosul across the east towards the town that I focused on, which is called Kramlis, which is uh, some distance from Erbil, uh, the capital in the Kurdish region in the north. So it's sort of in between Mosul and Erbil. You could think of it if you're looking at a map. And what I heard from listening to stories from clergy members of the town, aid workers who worked with the population there is essentially they were on guard all summer waiting to see whether ISIS was going to push further. And they thought they were safe and had been assured by security courses that they were in fact going to be safe. And then there was an evening in early August when all of a sudden uh, security forces are leaving the area they realized that ISIS is coming down the highway and they had literally hours to evacuate from the town. So the story that I told was about this priest who uh, is essentially like the center heartbeat uh, of this town who rang the giant bell that's in the middle of town trying to reach all of the people who live there, get them out in time. They were able to pack up their cars. Some of them set out on foot, move towards Erbil, that Kurdish capital. There were a few people who got left behind, but actually ISIS did let them go sort of miraculously. And they end up with very little supply, very little sense of what's going to happen, displaced in Erbil. The community I focused on was stuck in a half-finished apartment building that didn't even have all of its walls put into place yet. And they were sharing this space with hundreds of other people from other towns on different floors. And they started to realize that this wasn't just going to be 24 hours of ISIS occupying their town or 24 days of ISIS occupying their town, that they were really there for the long haul. So this became a long-term, many, many months-long displacement for these Christians. Many of them were in Erbil. Some of them were displaced to other towns that are near that region. And it wasn't until finally security forces were able to beat back ISIS ultimately to the Battle of Mosul, which was sort of the culmination of the effort to push ISIS out of that area of Iraq, that these people were able to even imagine possibly going home. But the, the real focus of my piece, uh, sort of using this dramatic and horrible story as the center, is the fact that ISIS was not the beginning of their troubles, and ISIS has not been the end of their troubles. There are all sorts of conditions on the ground in Iraq for these Christians that make it very hard in a day-to-day way, even before ISIS, to move freely, to feel secure, to feel confident that they can be Christian and be safe. And in the wake of ISIS, there has been an enormous amount of hesitation for people in return 
comforting to the Nineveh plain. One is just the facts on the ground. There has been an enormous effort to do reconstruction and rebuild houses, but people are nervous that they're going to go back to half-abandoned neighborhoods and the demographics of those neighborhoods are changing and they don't know who their neighbors are anymore. But they're also not sure whether there's going to be another ISIS, that the next surge well, of a, an extremist force is right down the road. Can you talk a little bit sort of specifically about how ISIS sort of treated uh, the Christian population? Was it sort of akin to how they approached Yazidis, uh, which you know, was, was sort of genocidal in, 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 in its intent, at least when it came to uh, Yazidis? Yeah. So a couple things. I would say first... There is not a total divorce between the insurgent violence in those years right after the U.S. invasion of Iraq that did at times target Christian individuals and churches and communities and what came later. As we know, ISIS is sort of this amalgamation or stepchild or, you know, descendant of these other forces that had been brewing in Iraq previously. And so it just, it didn't just rise out of the dust from nowhere and take a completely different form. There were violent, there were forms of violence that targeted Christian prior to Iraq. But I would say the distinctive thing about ISIS in its true treatment of Christians and Yazidis specifically um, was this calling out, this targeting of these minority populations, which have been in the region for a very, very long time and trying to essentially uh, eliminate any claim of legitimacy that they might have to the land and also then to systematically uh, make sure that they're pushed out of the land and that they that they you know, basically died, that they, that it's they like wouldn't ge- be genocidal almost. Yeah. I mean, the United States went back and forth. We remember this big fight in 2015 over whether the state department was going to declare ISIS's actions, a genocide against Christians and Yazidis. And there was a huge community of advocates who felt it was crucial to call it what it was, that this was genocidal intent to specifically remove these particular populations. I would say, you know, my, my story focused on Christians in part because part of the focus is on that bridge to the United States and Christians have a huge advocacy community here in the U.S. The Trump administration has has focused on their cause for a lot of reasons. So that was one of the reasons I selected them. But it's worth noting that Yazidis had an enormous amount of hardship and in fact, in certain ways, um, caught a worse situation than Christians because many of them were taken as slaves into ISIS's camps. Women who were kidnapped, forced to serve ISIS, were raped. All of these situations, that scene that we, it's burned into my mind at least, on Mount Sinjar, where all of the Yazidis had gone up to the top of this mountain and were basically surrounded by ISIS and aid groups were trying to drop food to them and they were stranded and it wasn't clear what was going to happen to them. I mean, this situation when ISIS came into this territory in northern Iraq was really horrific for these religious minority groups. And I think it's it's important to hover on that because these are people who have been in this land for a very, very long time. And part of ISIS's MO was to try to delegitimize that, to uh, erase their claim to the land. And you also detail in your piece how 
you know, in this post-ISIS uh, Iraq, um, there is still um, institutionalized discrimination against religious minorities, specifically Christian, but also just sort of day-to-day um, sort of persecution, I suppose, that, that many Christians feel from, you know, their neighbors or, or, or others. Can you uh, talk a little bit about um, sort of the, the sort of tiered level, I suppose, of citizenship that is afforded to um, Iraqi Christians and sort of why even now after ISIS, so many are, are fleeing the country and so many are, are seeking um, to live abroad? So this is, I think, the most crucial part of the story, which is we as a global community pay a lot of attention to the exclamation point moments for persecuted populations when there's a genocide happening, a mass displacement, something horrible. And we should, we rightfully should pay attention to those exclamation point crises. But it's also really important to pay attention to the slow squeeze. And that's that discrimination that you were just talking about. The way the Iraqi constitution was drafted after the U.S. invasion of Iraq does acknowledge the right of religious minorities to live in Iraq and exist in Iraq, but it does also establish Islam as the religion of Iraq. And with that comes all sorts of practicalities about uh, how Christians are identified, rules about the kids of mixed marriages, or in some cases, children of rape across religious lines um, that are, are sort of a function or an expression of that government and its conception. And then there are all of these de facto aspects of life on the ground for Christians, things that actually are so normal to this population that people talked about them as though they were just, you know, like the weather. Um, the fact that, for example, in Bartella, a town down the street from Cromleys in the Nineveh Plain, which was historically Christian, has now demographically essentially inverted so that Christians no longer have that majority, strong majority population. They can't get hired by non-Christian businesses. There's this real tension on the streets between Christians and non-Christians. This sense that uh, the the lived atmosphere where there are sort of political signs around from groups that have as part of their slogans, the elimination of or the downplaying of Christian influence in the region, the Christians see this as an implicit or I guess explicit threat. And this is just part of their everyday life, this sense that groups of different religious identity have to be separate, that they're not going to be treated in the in the same way, and that Christians essentially think they have to fend for themselves, especially in the absence of a stable functioning government that is committed to their protection and security. And, and you know, as you point out in the piece, you know, the um, this is not just a story um, about the persecution of a minority religion. It's a story almost of, of democracy in 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 Iraq and the failure of democracy, which, you know, said these societies can be measured by their tolerance of religious minorities, by how much pluralism is, is, is a societal value and the persecution of a religious minority, in this case, Christian, um, augurs poorly for the health and the strength of that sort of young and, and fledgling democracy. That's exactly right. I think the 
case of religious persecution of Christians in Iraq specifically captivated me and stuck with me in part because it's, I would say it's a canary in the coal mine, but actually we're past that point. You know, there's an inflection point really and truly about whether Christianity will survive in any meaningful way in Iraq and certainly in other places in the region as well. And this is sad in part because of history and culture and all of those things, but it's sad largely and tragic largely because it is a a test of just how thoroughly the ideals of a democratic Middle East have not been able to be put into place. And I do think that, and lots of scholarship shows that, the the inability of countries to sustain diversity, to allow a series of religious minorities to thrive alongside a majoritarian population is in fact a test of its cultural and political health and will to sustain this commitment to sort of difference and governance through coming together in a public square despite your identity. So I I do think that the story of the Christians of the Middle East is big historically, but also huge politically for our understanding of what's going to come next in these countries that are essentially squeezing out all of their historic religious minority populations. And and uh, the Nineveh Valley also has some like geopolitical explanatory power <laughs> as, as as well. I mean, as you say, you know, you know, uh, Pence, Vice President Pence, is sort of leading this charge in the U.S. government to try to pour more resources into the Nineveh Valley to uh, help rebuild um, Christian communities there and support Christian communities there. There's also, um, you know, rumors or evidence, perhaps, that Iran is also seeking a foothold in this area as a way to broaden its influence in in Iraq. Um, so. Uh, can you talk, I suppose, a little bit uh, just about the sort of geopolitical relevance of that piece of territory and how that sort of fits into, um, you know, your your broader story? Yeah, you know, if you imagine on a map this swath of territory in the northern region of Iraq and just look at what it has for its neighbors, so to speak, you can immediately see that it is in a very hot neighborhood of the world. So there's Iran to the east, which a lot of scholars, people in the government, people on the ground believe Iran wants to establish a corridor of influence that reaches from Iran through Iraq into Syria. And obviously, Iran has been trying to exercise more control over Iraq for uh, basically all of time, but especially in recent years has been more successful in asserting its control there. So that's sort of the neighbor to the east. To the west, you have Syria uh, and the instability that's there. It was obviously home to the last pockets of ISIS until very recently. To the north, you have uh, the Kurdish independence region, region, uh, Kurdish independent region. And that is uh, a sort of harbinger of instability insofar as to the south, you have Baghdad. And the conflict between those two entities has also 
been very complicated for the Christians. A story that I'll tell is a, a family that I met who were displaced from their house uh, after ISIS came and then tried to go back. They wanted to go back to their town, but they had to leave again because the front line of the conflict between Iraqi security forces and Kurdish security forces ran through their town. It So that conflict heated up in the couple of years right after ISIS. And so they were displaced once again by internal Iraqi politics. So they have been basically caught on all sides. And when the U.S. looks at this, when the Trump administration looks at this, they see not only a country that we have had a long involvement with that they want to retain as an ally against Iran, but they also see this swath of territory that we have had a large military presence in that they do not want to see falling to American enemies. And one of the theories that I offer in the piece based on interviews that I did with Trump administration officials is that there's this very clear dotted line between this sense that the U.S. has an obligation to stabilize religious minorities in Iraq because of our commitment to religious freedom and our sense that the stability of these populations is a bulwark against the rise of extremist forces, either in terms of insurgent forces, but also in terms of regimes that the United States perceives to be its enemies. So finally, in the piece, you know, and, and, and you just said in, in our conversation that since, you know, the last two decades, there's been an 80% decline in the Christian population uh, in Iraq to now about 250,000 people. What sort of events might suggest to you that that number would precipitously fall even further and, you know, Christians in, in Iraq will go sort of the same way the Jews in Iraq did in the 40s and 50s and where there were, you know, a decent, sizable Jewish population there, um, but now there's virtually none? Mm, so a few things. The first is that with that comparison to the Jews in particular, I was actually shocked by how many of the priests I met brought that up without any prompting. I was interested in that history and that connection, and it was something I was wanting to explore anyways. But unprompted, very often, they would bring up this sense that once there were Jews in Iraq and they disappeared, and now Christians are the next people on that list of ancient peoples from Iraq who will no longer be there. They see what's happening around them. So their own self-conception, uh, at least on certain days in certain communities, is very much one of pessimism. But I would say the most powerful testament to me was meeting family after family after family. And these are people who have either had the bad luck of not being able to emigrate despite their efforts to emigrate, they don't have the right connections or ability to secure visas or the money, or these are people who have tried to stay and want to stay, but nonetheless, uniformly across the board, everyone I spoke with acknowledged that they either were trying to leave, would leave, or potentially might get to a point one day where it might be necessary for them to leave. I remember, for example, a family I met I went and sat in their living room and 
we were talking about, uh, this was actually the family that had been displaced twice, once by ISIS and once by the conflict between Baghdad and uh, Erbil. And they were talking about their town and their house and their family. And the patriarch of the family said, we would never leave. You know, you'd have to cut me to my bone before I will leave. Like, I, I will I will never go. This is our homeland. And then I said, and then maybe 10 minutes later, I said something like, you know, what if somebody offered you visas to go to the United States, you know, in a year or two? He said, yes, hmm. hands down. If you can guarantee me that we wouldn't be stuck in Jordan or Turkey, that we would get to go to the U.S. or Australia or Europe in one or two years, I would take my my entire family tomorrow. Hmm. So there, there's really, even among the people who want to stay, this sense that it is an unstable situation. Security is not guaranteed. The future is very cloudy. The more people who leave, the harder it is to stay. And I don't think this is the end of Christianity in the Middle East. And I don't think the story has been written to its conclusion. I think there's absolutely a possibility that something will turn, the stabilization efforts will work, that there could be some form of hope. But I do think that all of these factors make it very, very hard to imagine a sustainable future where people can build a life for themselves after all of the instability they've been through. Uh, well, Emma, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for the piece. I'll, I'll post a link to it on the website. I appreciate your time and, and willingness to talk about this topic. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Emma Green. That was a great interview. I love that article. Go check it out in the Atlantic. And as I said at the outset, please do support the show uh, by becoming a premium subscriber. These bonus episodes are great. Uh, there are about 50 of them that I'll be rolling out that are my very favorite interviews from the archives with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers who just tell great stories, have great life and career advice, and you know, it's almost like an oral history of key events as well in, in foreign policy. So become a premium subscriber. Also, here, here's a little pop quiz. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what uh, is the key figure that you know of who is from Nineveh? Let me know. Send me an email. I will see you later. Bye.